A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. breeder in America. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And it's not just another episode, it's part two of our ongoing series, The History of the Valozhin Yeshiva. So before we move into that, I just want to uh, relate um, a little something about what I, just, uh, over the experience I had today, working with a, a, um, a client on his family history, researching his family history, and a discovery was made of a branch of this fellow's family who lives in Tel Aviv, an elder, elderly secular Israeli woman who is a distant uh, relation who kept documentation and photographs about the family. And I went down tonight to interview this woman, fascinating woman with a story, about a relative of hers who was a rabbi back in Lithuania and uh, was murdered by the Nazis with his family and her side of the family kept some of the correspondence and and uh, really brought out a whole new uh, side to the story of this family history. So that's also something that's being done as people today are looking into their family histories. So if you're interested in doing that, make sure to be in touch with me as well. Uh, interesting, I posted an episode uh, last week or so um, about Remendel of Rimenov and his successor of Tzvi Hirsch of Rimenov, and I titled it The House of Rimenov, um, which evoked uh, associations, which a couple of listeners sent in, and they, one of them wrote, I thought you were going to write, you were going to speak about the Tsar, I was because it sounded like the House of Romanov, and I read it wrong. And it turns out you start speaking Maiselach uh, about Remendel of Romanov. So uh, I'm sorry to disappoint uh, uh, people with that. Uh, they're expecting to hear stories of the Tsar. So actually, in the second uh, episode of this installment of um, Valazhin Yeshiva, it does get involved with not directly with the House of Romanov, but with the Tsarist government in Russia and um, their efforts at at um, reforming Jewish education, uh, which Valazhin Yeshiva, and especially its head, Rabbi Itzala Valazhin, was involved with in the 1840s. So we'll hopefully get to that today. But we spoke about in the last episode about how Valazhin gets off the ground. Um Chaim Valazhin, or his motivation for opening the yeshiva, and now it exists. Now it's a yeshiva that started and pretty much all the innovation that eventually Velazhin Yeshiva becomes to be known for is already implanted by its founder, by the great Reb Chaim um, both the style of learning. Um, he his, One of his uh, goals is to uh, bring what he feels is, is somewhat of the legacy of the style of learning of the Vilna Gain, of more of a... Uh, text, pshat-based style of learning in the yeshiva to cover the entire Torah. They started from the beginning of Brachis and they went till the end of Nida. They didn't learn specific Masechtas, which was a yeshiva custom that probably originated in Slabatka much later, to only learn Masechtas from Nashim and Nazikin. 
In Valajan, they learned the entire Shas. And uh, since Valajan produced Rabbanim, so at least in its early years, there many of the students on their own initiative also studied the Halacha that came out from the Sugis. I don't know if it was the official policy of the Yeshiva, because in the early days of the Yeshiva, the, there was a lot of independence uh, given to the learning. The Shir was never the main focus, even in the later years as it happens. Um, the the main focus was learning on their own in the base medrash, um, encouraged uh, by the Rosh Yeshiva and by the other uh, Yeshiva staff, and they were available to discuss anything in learning. And of course, someone like Rechaim Velazhener was able to discuss anything and anywhere in Shas or anything in learning with any of the guys in the Yeshiva. Um, so, but they learned in an orderly, the official learning was in an orderly fashion from the beginning to the end of Shas. The, another innovation which was famously associated with Velazhen was that they learned all the hours of the day and night. There was learning in the base Medrash, and there's many, many sources that attest to that. Uh, Reb Chaim Velazhen's belief in Mishmarais and keeping different shifts. Uh, some guys slept uh, during the day and and learned at night, and and um, and even 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 Shabbos, there was a a night shift on Shabbos that the guys, when they woke up, they would have a little chalant, or I don't know chalant, they would have some Shabbos food left over from the Shabbos suda, and that would give them the energy to learn through the night. They would go to sleep in the earlier part of the evening, and then uh, get up in the middle of the night and and learn. And um, and again, these customs of some guys sleeping during the day. And also eating chalant late at night, Friday night, are definitely customs that still exist in the yeshiva world today. Although I'm not sure if it's because of the mishmaris, but at least uh, the vestige of, of those customs come from Valajan, perhaps. But in any event, Reb Chaim believed, and that was that seemed to continue pretty much till the end of Valajan and the Nitziv's time. It was still like that. The Nitziv used to visit the yeshiva based medrash during each and every one of the shifts throughout the day and night and check to see what was going on. So it was still going on in the Nitziv's time, even in the later years of the yeshiva. And Rabbi Rucham, Levavitz of the Mir, the Mashiach of the Mir, interestingly, makes a reference to um, this this Valajan Aminig in a shmuz that he gave, uh, a Musr talk that he gave to the yeshiva and the Mir. And he said, ideally we should have such a study program in the mirror like it was in Valajan, but, and this is Rabbi Rucham's Kelm uh, side coming out of him, he said, but we can't because the most important thing of a yeshiva is seder, to have an organized structure of the day, and if some people will be learning at night, and some people learning during the day, and this guy would be sleeping, and this guy would be up, it wouldn't really work, and that would, uh, that would ruin the orderly structure an organization of the yeshiva. So, but he like kind of had to apologize that they're not following in the legacy of Elijah. Um And then, of course, in the funding of the yeshiva, um, like I mentioned in the last episode, he develops a system of shadarim, of shluchad rabbanan, um, of, of fundraisers to go to the far reaches of the Russian Empire, both to fundraise and to speak about what Velazhen is. And these fundraisers were instrumental in recruiting the prize and star potential students of Velazhen to bring them in. They would write letters of recommendation, as well as, as, well as rabbis of the local towns where the, where the students originated from. And the funding of the yeshiva was built in a way that it, at least in the early years when it was still small and it didn't have its own building, it was somewhat well-funded. Another custom that Reb Chaim started in those early years that continued till the closing of Velazhen, interesting, and I'm not sure how many other yeshivas copied it, like many other customs that, that were mentioned here, um, he started giving a chumash here. Reb Chaim was also the rabbi of the town. He was the rabbi of the town for many years before he opened the yeshiva. And he gave a chumash that that um, after after Shachris in the morning, um, after davening, he gave a chumashir, which was unofficially also for the yeshiva guys, and um, and they and many of them would attend. And he that was continued later by Reb of Alajan, and then later by the Nitziv, the Hamik Dovar, which is the very famous commentary of the Nitziv on Chumash, comes from the chumashir that he gave to the Balabatim and to the yeshiva guys 
in Valajan. Um, some of the early Talmidim of Valajan Yeshiva became very famous as rabbis throughout Lithuania, throughout Russia. Um, Rabbi Yassel Famer, Rabbi Yassel Slutsker, as he was known as the rabbi in Slutsk, and the uh, not not a common visit. I bring when I bring the groups to I mean, Belarus itself is not so common. Uh, not not so many groups go to Belarus, although it is becoming a little more in style lately. But um, Slutsk, which is deep into Belarus, deep in Belarus, not that far from Minsk, I was only there once, and it was shortly after um, the Kever, the grave of Rabbi Slutsker, was discovered and redone. In fact, it was. Uh, there was a plaque there that it was redone, by, it was funded and taken care of by Lakewood Yeshiva, by the BMG Lakewood Yeshiva. I guess they feel the responsibility to do anything that, that's involved with Slutsk, Slutsk excuse me, or Kletsk, even though Rabbi Famer had nothing to do with the much later uh, Yeshiva that Rabbi Zalman and later Rabbi Aaron Cutler was associated with. It was half a century earlier, at least, if not more. Um, but but I guess the name Slutsk already invokes uh, the the memory, so they were involved in that. So we were actually by Rabbi Slutsker's uh, gravesite. Um, the Nachlas David, Rabbi David Tevela of uh, Minsk, the rabbi of Minsk, who was famous as a leader, as a rabbi, as actually a beloved rabbi. The people of Minsk were crazy over him. Um, also, uh, what to talk about, another another Talmud, uh, of Reb Chaim Valajan, Reb Valajan at this time was Reb Yosef Zundel of Salant, who was later the inspiration for Reb Yisrael Salanter to start the Musar movement. Even though Reb Yisrael Salanter himself did not study in Valajan, but his Rebbe, who he got the ideas uh, which which uh, which which led him to found the Musar movement, came from Reb Yosef Zundel, which is also a whole story. So Reb Yosef Zundel did uh, learn in Valajan by Reb Chaim Valajan. There are others. I don't want to get too too far off into the great individuals who learned in Valajan at that time, but um, but it already starts to become even in these early years as a important place of Torah of Chinuch and a place that people look to, and it started to gain fame, especially through these fundraisers. Meaning the the best way that the that the you know it wasn't uh, social media in those days. Um, and the ones who brought the news about this yeshiva were the people who came fundraising for the yeshiva. They would come into the base medrash in the local town, and they would start to talk about what this great yeshiva of Elijah is. And then slowly but surely, people start the people's opinions start to form about what's going on in Valajan, this amazing factory. And then, of course, the graduates. There's the graduates of the yeshiva that are becoming rabbis across the Russian Empire, and um, and that also lends more prestige to the yeshiva. The yeshiva is housed in a wooden base medrash in the town. Eventually they get their own building. It's burned down several times, as what happened in Eastern Europe, probably in most places in the world at the time, um, was that since most towns, the, um, were the houses, the buildings, were made out of wood for the most part. There were very few stone structures. And during the long, long winters, people had fireplaces burning firewood at all hours of the day. So it's just inevitable that these places burn down. And they burn down from time to time. And there's all kinds of stories about people collecting money for Nisrafim. And you had to have a letter, a hamlatza, a letter of recommendation from a rabbi that you're a Nisraf. You're a someone whose house was burned down and therefore you could collect money in the towns in the area to to get back on 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 uh, on your feet and sometimes there would be the fundraising drives would be for entire towns that had been burnt down and Velazhin was no exception and that included the yeshiva building which uh, burned down several times until in its much much later years the the brick the big stone brick building that we see when we go on the trips now to Velazhin which still stands an impressive very impressive structure that was built in the later years of of the yeshiva so, but before that, it was it was a wooden. In fact, one of the last times it was burnt down, much later, I'm jumping ahead of the story, but it was when Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, one of the greatest and most famous products of the Velazhin Yeshiva, also one of the last of the Mohicans. He was he died in 1953, and he was not the last, but one of the last great ones of Velazhin by that point. And um, he related a story about how he was helping all the boys 
Talmidim of the Lajni Yeshiva were helping during the fire, rescuing people, carrying people and things out of houses, and helping the fire department put out the fire. And all these things were done manually in those days. He needed everyone to pitch in and help. And he's helping and running around. And he notices that the skinny, poor, I don't know what he was, like a one of the simple uh, laborers in the town who was, looked like a little weakling, a little shtetliyid, and um, he sees him jumping into a burning house and carrying two people out, one under each arm. And he, Rabbi Zalman, like kind of froze in his tracks. This skinny, weak-looking guy is carrying two people out of the house. How does he have the strength to even carry these people out? And he said it struck him with a realization that what was happening here is that this person saw that the house was burning and that there's people inside. And then Rabbi Sazama, when he would say it over, he would say, Un ven When it's burning, we discover inner strength that we have. And he used that to convey a lesson, which is a, a powerful idiom for life, about how ven sebrentman kriktman keiches. And as if we feel that it's burning, if we feel that something is burning, if something around us is burning, then all of a sudden we have the strength and we... We very often tend to be dismissive of ourselves and say, we can't do it, I don't have the strength to do it, something or another. And Rabbi Zalman was trying to say is that all you have to do is feel like it, there's something burning. And Vence Brentman, I'm not trying to preach, obviously. I don't, I'm a history guy. I don't, I'm not a preacher. Um, but it's a, it's a story. So I'm telling it over as a story because it's an interesting story. Um, Reb Chaim dies in 1821, and and in one of the only smooth transitions in the leadership of the yeshiva, it goes to his son Reb Itzla, Reb Itzla Valajan, who kind of was in the shadow of his father. Um, you know, his father was so great and dominant that um, he remained in the shadow of his father. But he was really, really an amazing personality in his own right, which I want to elaborate on a little bit. The yeshiva grows during his time, during his tenure. And um, and uh, what's interesting, just as a side fact, because we're going to get back to it when we talk about the Nitziv's rise uh, in the next uh, couple of episodes, um, the the fact that Rebetzalah took over was not something that was self-evident. Uh, I mean, in the old school, style Kahal Yeshiva that we discussed in the first episode, since the community was in charge and the funding came from the community coffers and the, generally the, ra- the rabbi of the town was the Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva and if the community was wealthy, then they would hire a separate Rosh Yeshiva, but it was completely based on who the community would hire and who they felt would be the most appropriate or who they liked. And it, there was no idea of succession. Very often there might have been succession because it could be that there was a son who was who who they felt would be appropriate for the position but it wasn't it wasn't something that went uh, so obvious uh, ever but all of a sudden over here the question is who owns the yeshiva does it belong to the jewish people does it belong to the administrative directors gaboyim in minsk and vilna who were the ones who oversaw i guess they're kind of like the board of trustees even though the term obviously wasn't used in those days um or was it a personal property of Reb Chaim Velazhener? Or some combination of all three? So one of the ramifications of that was who would be the Rosh Hashiva when Reb Chaim Velazhener dies. And, and quite simply, it goes over to Reb Etzela. And And over this time, it happened simply. In the next generation, it didn't happen so simply. So so it's interesting that it went so smoothly over to his son, Rebitzel, that it was obvious that he would inherit the crown. Something that in 1821, it was just becoming part of the Hasidic movement, meaning even it wasn't even today we consider it, that it goes without saying um, that, it, that, that the dynastical succession uh, goes in, in Hasidus and in the yeshivas, it wasn't so obvious in the early years, in, in those days, both in Hasidus or in the yeshivas, but um, but here it went to Rabitzala, and at the same time, the mode of dynastical succession was uh, gaining traction in the Hasidic world as well. So it's just an interesting note. So Rabitzala takes over, the yeshiva grows under his watch, 
And he continues the legacy of his father, and he enjoyed the prestige and love, and people uh, respected him, um, like 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 by his father. In fact, the um, he was he was known as one of the great leaders of the Jewish people. Um, he was considered a smaller version of his father, but when people in the Vilna area would refer to the Rav, you know, today you say the Rav, it depends who you're speaking to. You don't have to be very careful. Who is the Rav, right? So some people would say it means Rav Solveitchik, and other people would say it means a different Rav Solveitchik, and or you know they're called the Brisker Rav, or they have uh, uh, many other people who you consider the Rav. When I speak to um, um, certain members of Rabbi Yashiv's household, they refer to Rabbi Yashiv as the Rav. And some people, when they say the word Rosh Hashiva, they're referring to someone, and they automatically assume who you're mean, who you're mean to say. So Yaakov Lifshitz, the famous secretary of the Kavner Rav, Rebitzikochan Inspector, he said in the time of Rebitzel of Alajan, anyone who said the word the Rav, they meant Rebitzel. He was, of course, the rabbi in Alajan and the Rosh Hashiva. He was both. So he was definitely, um, he was uh, very much uh, accepted. And, 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 um, What's interesting, the most fascinating aspect about Rabitzel's career was actually not directly involved with Yeshiva's Valajan, but it somewhat was, and it really brings out what the role of Valajan as a place, as the Yeshiva was starting to play in the Jewish people, the Russian Empire, as well as its leaders, as well as the Rosh Yeshiva, they were starting to take a very central role among the Jews of Russia. And that story is a fascinating saga, um, about the visit of Max Lilienthal to Valazhin, and in general, what Max Lilienthal was doing in Russia, and what was he trying to implement with his educational reform of the Jewish schools in Russia. So what was the story of Max Lilienthal, and how is he connected to Rabitzela Valazhin? And this is one of the most interesting stories um, of the Jews of the Russian Empire in the 19th century, where there's no shortage of interesting stories. Just as a to give you an idea of, of what a, what a you know, almost like a soap opera that it was, uh, the, the, the back and forth about both what, uh, what Max Lilienthal did and the debate afterwards to try to interpret and understand and, uh, all his actions. So in Rabnasen Kamenetsky, his book, he has close to 60 pages about Max Lilienthal's a visit to Valazhin and to really his time in Russia and specifically his relationship with Rebitzel of Valazhin and his visit to Valazhin and the influence it had. I don't think there's any other topic in the entire 1,400-page book that Rebnasen has 60 pages on. I didn't check. It could be about Slabatka. If you add up all the pages, there is more. But here it's like it knocks it down 60 pages in a row. That's about... Um, that's like uh, 5% of the book. That's a significant percentage, if my math is right, but it probably is wrong because I'm not good at math. But either way, so what's the story? Max Lilienthal is a young German um, Jewish rabbi, and he he had a doctorate from, from some sort of university in Germany, I forget which, and he's still young, unmarried, and he's invited, he's 27 or something like that, and he's invited um, to uh, 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 to the uh, in Russia to, to Riga. Riga is today the capital of Latvia, but Latvia was part of the Russian Empire, then the Tsarist Empire, and he, to become the head of a school, an enlightened school. And you have to understand that this is in the year 1839. 1839, the Haskalah, the movement of enlightenment, the Jewish Haskalah in Russia, the Russian Maskilim, is just getting off the ground. They're a small minority still at the time, and they're intellectuals based in places like Galicia, in, in Tarnopol, in Kiev, in Odessa, in, in other places in the Ukraine, and also in the area of Lithuania, mainly Vilna itself, ADM Akayan and Ginsburg, Mordechai Ginsburg and others, a whole group of Maskilim in Vilna, the Maskile Vilna, Rechavetz Chaim, who was a young child in the 1840s, studied in Vilna in the, shul, in the yeshiva of Chaim Nachman Parnas and Rabbi Yankel 
Rabbi Yankov Barit, and he described later in life how the group of the Maskilim in Vilna tried to to win him over to their side, but um, also in other places in the area of Lithuania, such as Riga, where they had a school that was enlightened, and they looked to the West. In the West, it was the uh, really the end stages of the German-Jewish Haskalah. The German-Jewish Haskalah was already moving into two venues which were beyond Haskalah. It was the Reform Movement of Abraham Geiger, others, and assimilation. Uh, the generation of the German Haskalah preceded. It was it was before, so this is like the tail end of the uh, German Haskalah and the early rise of the Russian Haskalah. And, and they... Uh, they they import this young Max Lilienthal to be to you know enlighten them about enlightenment and be in charge of this school. Um, while he's there in this school, he starts to think bigger and and uh, and maybe could be involved in overall educational reform for all the Jews and the schools in the Russian Empire. And he eventually gets in touch with the. Not exactly clear if he was the ministry of, minister of education or minister of culture of enlightenment. His exact title is is uh, is not so important, but he was a count. He was a member of the Russian aristocracy, very close with the Tsar's family, Count Sergei or Sergei uh, Overov, very famous personality as far as the Jews in Russia are concerned. He considered himself an enlightened man, a cultured individual. He'd gone to universities in Western Europe, in Germany, Bavaria other places, and he was interested in making the Jews of Russia productive citizens. And the two of them joined forces, and, and Lilienthal meets uh, over of uh, several occasions, and they share a common thought about if the, to make the, the, uh, the, the Jews of Russia, which were a huge uh, number, and this is during the time, again, 1839s, during the time of the pretty much repressive regime of Tsar Nikolai I, who, you know, the, the Jews don't remember any of the Tsars favorably, but if there's one that was really horrible, it was Tsar Nikolai I. He was the Tsar from 1825 to 1855, the end of the Crimean War, when he died, and he, um, and he was really, you know, not very nice to the Jews at all. The famous Cantonist decrees were under his reign, um, not his entire reign, but for a large portion of his his uh, his reign and many other decrees. There are certain banishments from provinces and and so on, which is you know the story of the Jews uh, you know under the czars, which is also a, quite a fascinating story. And uh, just as a clue, by the way, in, in an overgeneralization, um, the Nikolais of the czars were always worse than the Alexanders of the czars even though that's not a good generalization because there were exceptions in both directions. But in general, the Nikolais were worse than the Alexanders, which I don't know if the name has anything to do with that, but it's just a good way to remember. Um, so the, the so Overov is, he's not, he's not, I mean, it doesn't seem like, he, from all the sources, it doesn't seem like he was trying to do it in a cruel way. He honestly believed that it would make the Jews more productive citizens and modernize them and r- r- Russianize them, Russify them. And, uh, and and make them uh, more part of, integrate them into society if they would get a little education, if they would become more Russian, if they would reform their outdated cheder system and yeshiva system and, and bring some enlightenment to, to it. So he makes Lilienthal his agent, and he's actually employed, and he's got a salary, an impressive salary actually, by the Tsarist government to be the one to enlighten the Jews. He's given that official position. Um, so he And he's given an order to go out and present it to the Jewish people. So he goes out, and he goes to Vilna, he goes to Minsk, he goes to the large Jewish communities, and he presents his vision, he presents the idea, and... Um, it's rejected somewhat violently, especially in Minsk, which was more of a traditional uh, city at the time than than Vilna was. Vilna already had a nice uh, presence of Haskala, of Maskilim, like I mentioned. Now, the Maskilim in Russia, to a certain extent, at least in the initial stage, welcome this. I mean, they feel like this is what they're trying to do on their own. 
And here they have the ear of the Russian government in the form of Sergei Sergei. So just stick with his last name because I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Overov. Um, they have they have his he's on board, and then they have this German Moskil who seems to be uh, working in cahoots with the Russian government to to on the same platform that the Russian Moskilim want to enlighten the Jewish people and. Um, and you know, within the streams of Haskalah in Russia, in in the Russian Empire, there were the more moderate streams. That there was there was even a form of the of the Hebrew Haskalah, you know, to, which you know eventually led uh, at a much later stage in the latter part of the century to the rise of in, in Jewish culture and nationalism. But that's also another story. And there was the moderate Haskalah, which just wanted to better the situation of the Jews in Russia and make them more well-liked. You have to remember that uh, Russia lagged behind the other countries of Europe in granting civil rights and civic emancipation to its Jewish uh, subjects. And they wanted to improve that situation. They wanted to do away with anti-Semitism. And they wanted to make the Jews more productive citizens. So they have those intentions in mind. There was a more radical stream of Haskalah that felt that they had to do away with the Jewish religion. And of course, the Haskalah goes in stages in a... Which again is it, it? It is a whole story, and it's not not directly related to Valajan, except when it later infiltrates into Valajan, which is also at a later stage. We'll talk about that at uh, one in a probably more than one of the later episodes of this series. But um, the Maskilim are somewhat uh, happy with the this situation, and they kind of welcome him. Afterwards, there are those who have issues with him. He is at the end of the day a foreigner. He's a German. Um, with with a German Jew who doesn't understand Russian Jewry, who doesn't understand Russian Jewish society, who doesn't understand um, the changes, how they should be made, how they should be implemented. Is the idea that the government should force changes from above the correct way, or is it better that 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 it, they should come organically from below as the needs of the time require, and which is what the response he got from some of the traditionalists, from some traditionalist rabbis, that it could be that there are things to fix in the Chadarim, and it could be that there is improvement to be made, but we don't need you or Overov, for that matter, to be forcing it on us. That also is an issue. By the way, the reverberations of that issue remain within the Jewish people till today. How does educational reform, both in Israel and the United States, how does educational reform supposed to happen? Is it supposed to come as a grassroots? Is it supposed to come from within the Jewish people? Or is it supposed to be forced upon from without by different governments? Uh, so you see how the, the antecedents always exist in Jewish history and there's nothing new under the sun. So Lilienthal, his first round of appeals to the leaders of the Jewish communities in Russia are a failure, and he doesn't really get get things done. And he goes back to Overov to report it. They try to think of different strategies. And what eventually happens is, well, we're getting back to Valazhin, is that he comes to Valazhin, and he comes on his, on his second round of visits to Jewish communities. He ends up in around the Pale, the Pale of Settlement, and he ends up in Valazhin to meet with Erbetzala. Again, this, the point is, is that both in the eyes of Overov and Lilienthal and any Maskil that he had been in touch with or any rabbis that he was in touch with, Erbetzala was seen as one of the central leaders. And you see what a central place that, that Valazhin now holds. I mean, he has a lot of things going for him. He's the Rav in Valazhin, but Valazhin is not a large town. He's the son of Reb Chaim Valazhner, which already is a major prestige. He himself is a huge Talmud Chacham in his own right. But in addition to that, he stands at the head of the Valazhner Yeshiva, which now has already a reputation. And um, Lilienthal spends Yom Kippur in, uh, in Valazhner. And there's different versions of what happened over that Yom Kippur. And he met privately with Reb for hours, either right before Yom Kippur or right after Yom Kippur, and they discussed things, and he tried to convince him, and Rebitzelah tried to feel him out, and the Nitziv was by part of the meetings as the young son-in-law of Rebitzelah, or maybe he wasn't by part of the meetings, and maybe other people were there, and there's a lot of dispute what exactly went on, as these things tend to be, but ultimately, they were, they were respectful to him. You have to understand that Lilienthal, even though he later was famous as a reform rabbi in the United States, which we'll get to perhaps later on in this episode, 
but he also, but at that time, he was still a what we would call a shaymer tayru mitzvah. He still was a traditional Jew, and they and they tried to be mechaber him with an aliyah in the yeshiva to give him an aliyah to the Torah, and um, he respectfully declined. He said, "You don't have to honor me like that," which could be because he was more interested in staying in his hotel and not coming to the yeshiva. It's not clear why he put it declined it because he did take an aliyah when they offered it to him in Minsk. But he, he, they were, they were respectful towards him in, in Valajan. And he meets with her. Bitzler. Bitzler gives a very powerful schmooze to the yeshiva on Yom Kippur night. And he directed, um, in a hintful way towards what, uh, Lilienthal was, was trying to do and what his, uh, and what his goals were. And during that Yom Kippur schmooze, he said that before the Yom Kippur, the Kain Gadol is taught by by the Sanhedrin, how to bring the Ketairis on the, in the Beis HaMikdash on Yom Kippur. And they tell him, don't do it like the Tzedukim, like the Sadducees do it, which was a different process of doing the Ketairis. And and it says there in the Gemara, Ritzel quoted the Gemara, that the Kayin Gadol would then cry because they suspected him of being a Tzeduki. And Ritzel said, why are they, why, you know, why, why is he, why is he being, uh, suspected and why is he crying? And he said he said something along the lines. It's not clear um, wh- what exactly he said. Different versions again, but he said something along the lines of is that there's a reason to suspect, either because we have to be suspicious these days because we don't know what the Russian government really wants. Maybe they want to convert everyone to, to the Russian Orthodox Church. Maybe they're trying to destroy the Jewish people. Who knows what the intentions of the Russian government are? And we also don't, and and we also don't know what your intentions are. We don't know. Maybe if there, are, if people are not being receptive to you, then and people suspect you, then if there's there's no smoke without a fire. If people suspect you, then there must be a reason to suspect you. And um, there were eyewitnesses that saw Lilienthal crying when he was the, during this rebuke, so to speak, of Rabitzla. And um, one of the interesting sources to this whole story is the Makar Baruch. Now, the Makar Baruch is a problematic source. Uh, Rabbi Baruch Epstein was the author of the Torah Tamima, learned in Valajan, was the nephew of the Nitziv. And he wrote a, when he was during World War One. he describes that he was in a dire situation and he decided to comfort himself by writing his memoirs when he was in Pinsk. And he writes four thick volumes called Makar Baruch, and the fourth volume is dedicated to uh, Valajan and the personality of Nitziv, mainly his alleged memories of his time in Valajan. And um, it's a very problematic source. There's been a lot of scholarly debate around the source. And Rabbi Shua Munshine famously said that he's surprised that anyone relies on, on Makar Baruch anymore as a source. And then he was. Mishum Anshain, who was the famous uh, researcher of Chabad history, he uh, he he was referring to the third volume of Makar Baruch, where he he goes on literally hundreds of pages about the alleged relationship that um, that uh, Baruch Epstein's father, the Aruch Hashulchan, Bechil Michal Alevi Epstein, had with the Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad, uh, with the Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the original one, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe of Chabad. And there are definitely a lot of holes in that story. So, you know, it throws a, a question on it as a source. But this, this uh, the Makar Baruch claims to have heard from his father, the Aruch HaShulchan, who was a student in Valashen at the time, meaning he was in the base of Medrash when Ritzlis spoke that Yom Kippur night. The Aruch HaShulchan was there. He was a Talmud in Valashen at the time. And he's relating the story to his son, Baruch Epstein. So it definitely is a basis for the story, and he's only one source. There are obviously others, quite a few other sources as well, which some corroborate, some have different versions. Um, and and uh, and the, and it comes out about how uh, the two of them interacted in this way. And what ultimately happened is Reb Itzela sent him on his way and kind of gave him a quasi-haskama. In other words, he told the communities that this time we shouldn't throw rocks at him, like many of them almost did the first time around. Some of them threw snowballs, actually, in those, that part of the world. Yerushalayim is more known for its rocks, but in that part of the world, snowballs were more common, which is probably, and it's better in a way, it doesn't hurt as much as rocks, 
and it doesn't do as much damage. But then, like, you have this freezing water and it trickles down your shirt. So I'm not even sure which one is more uh, uh, easy to, 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 to take, a snowball or a rock. But either way, so the, the, um, so he goes on the second round, and this time in Minsk and in Vilna and the other communities he visits, they are a bit more receptive to him because of the personality of Reb and because of the interaction that he had with him in Valazhin. And there's, again, all kinds of versions. What in the world did Reb see? What he saw, that he's a big tzaddik now, like now he's okay. And it is possible that Reb saw some sincerity, that he said that he really meant, you know, he comes from Germany, he doesn't know the Russian Jewry well. He thinks that this will be good for the Jews, and he thinks that certain implementing certain reforms in the Chadarim will be good for the Jews. And he's totally, uh, and he's totally l'shem shemayim, but he, and, he, and he supposedly even swore to Rabitzla, again, different versions of how he swore, when he swore, if he swore, that if he sees that the that Uvarov is not sincere and he really has ulterior motives against the good of the Jewish people, then he's going to drop his job and go back to Germany. And evidently, the Nitziv was impressed by by um, by uh, the Nitziv, the young Nitziv, the young young Yungaman then was impressed by uh, by Lilienthal, and they enjoyed a cordial relationship during the few days that he was in uh, uh, Valajan. Um, interestingly enough, you know, Rabitzla and the Nitziv were were very worldly people. They were, you know, they saw the welfare of the Jewish people at home. They weren't stuck in in Valajin. Rabitzla himself was a very knowledgeable person. He knew languages. He knew he knew Polish, probably Russian, German. Taught himself supposedly even Latin. He, for a time, he wanted to even study medicine to be able to help people. And the and he a very interesting and wise and and we would call him today the term didn't exist then with it he was a very knowledgeable person in general he wasn't someone who could easily be fooled and uh, as was the Nitziv as later uh, later events would also prove uh, regards to him uh, so they weren't taken in uh, by 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 this guy so either he did display some sincerity or perhaps uh, Rebetzela was scared he understood during his discussions with Lilienthal, that Lilienthal meant business, and he was backed by Ovarov. And if he's backed by the Russian government, then he can carry out threats, he can make things worse for the Jewish people in Russia, he can do all kinds of things, and therefore it's not wise not to cooperate. And interesting, the next year, several months later, there was a conference that was called with rabbinical representatives were invited, as well as as uh, other, you know, Jewish educators, Maskilim, were invited to St. Petersburg by Overov in a one of the first conferences of its kind since Russia had taken over these provinces, the Pale of Settlement, where the Jews were. And this is one of the first rabbinical conferences. It's not really a rabbinical conference, but there are rabbis that are invited. The one who represented the Hasidim in Russia was the Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad, and the one who invent, represented the non-Hasidim in Russia was Rab Itzala. And the one who in, represented the Haskalah new Jewish interests was the famous Maskil Bitzal Stern from, I think it was from Odessa. So he's there, Lilienthal's there, and Overov. So interesting, just to point out the personalities who are the main participants of the meeting. You have basically the representative of every type of person who influenced the Jewish people in the 19th century. You had the Maskil from Eastern Europe, Bezal Stern. You had the German modernist, Lilienthal. You have the great Rosh Hashiva, Rabitzla. You have the great Tzaddik, the Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzaddik of Chabad. And you have the non-Jewish government looming in the lurking in the background, Uvarov, who's also present at the meeting. And not only that, but it was at that meeting that it's the first time that Rabitzla, who comes from the house of Rechaim Elazar, the house of the Vilna Gain, he's meeting up with a great Hasidic Rebbe. The people who had, the Gain had signed all these cherems against, the people who, after even after the, the active, uh, almost violent uh, opposition to Hasidism, the 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 Hisnagdus in its phase, which kind of petered out in 1804, which I discussed in a different episode, 
So the, 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 there was still you know, a lot of cold relationship. There wasn't exactly, weren't exactly meeting together. And here they're meeting together. They're meeting together for the same purpose, to try to defend the current forms of Jewish education and against the new waves that Overov was trying to impose on them with his proxies, people like Lilienthal. And the Tzemach Tzedek and Rebetzla realized that they, the times have changed and they have new enemies. They have to protect themselves against the imposition of, of you know, not, not and, and anti-traditionalist trends from the Russian government or from the Haskalah or from outsiders like Lilienthal. And it's better to join forces and leave the differences that Hasidim and non-Hasidim might have behind. And the reconciliation between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim starts in 1843 by this meeting of Rebetzal and Tzemach Tzedek. So it's historic for other reasons as well. And, and Uvarov pressures them, and there's laws that are passed about Jewish education. The next year, there's also, the next year is 1844, that's when the law against Jewish dress, which is a whole story in the Chidush Rim, in a different part of the Russian Empire, was very active in that Rebetzal Kavorka and other tzaddikim in Poland, which is a story hopefully we'll get to at another time. But, in, but it also leads eventually, the law of 1844 uh, of Jewish education eventually leads to the opening of the two rabbinical se- seminaries that the Russian government uh, opens when the uh, Maskilim were very actively involved in both in Zhitomir and in Vilna, which gets us to the story of Yisrael Salanter and him having to leave Vilna. Yisrael Salanter himself meets with, with um, Rabbi Itzla, uh, on his return from the conference in St. Petersburg, and uh, he tells the younger Rizal about what the Russian government is trying to do. So you have these interactions with both present and future leaders of the Jewish people. In fact, Yaakov Lushitz records another story where, where Reb Itzla was, was had to go to different meetings in Vilna, I believe, at that time, to, to, to meet with different representatives of the Russian government and to meet with this person and that person. And, and someone asked him, you're Reb Itzala, you're the Gadol Hadar, you're the Rashiva and Valajan. People should be coming to meet you. You're busy running around from meeting to meeting. It's not, it's not respectful. And he responded something along the lines of, I take them wherever they lead me. Whatever needs to be done, I do. I'm not looking for, for the proper respect. I'm, uh, wherever they schlep me, that's where, they, that's where I'm going. Wherever it needs to be done. So Rebetzla plays a leading role, and this leads us to the last part of the Lilienthal story, is that after, after this whole meeting with Rebetzla in Velazhen, and he goes back, and then they have this meeting the next year, and he goes, and he's, and, 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 and Lilienthal again goes to the Pale of Settlement, and he's again in Vilna, and again in Minsk, and he's trying to, and at the peak of what seems to be his success in trying to implement these reforms, he goes back for a visit to Germany, to his family, to his his kala, his fiancée, he was getting married at the time, and he sends a letter a few weeks later to Uvarov, telling him he's resigning from his position, and he disappears. He never returns to Russia. Shortly afterwards, he moves to America. There he actively joins the reform movement. He's involved with Isaac Mayer Wise and different uh, education and shuls, synagogues, temples, whatever you want to call it, in America. And his story after that, and what people mainly remember him for, is for his major activity as one of the leaders of the reform movement in the United States, where he's for the next 40-something years, I think. Yeah, yeah, almost 40 years, 30-something years. And he dies in 1882, if I'm not mistaken. And that's where he ends up, and that's his career. And the question is, what in the world was he doing? In a, why did he leave? With the peak of his success, all of a sudden, and it was quite sudden, and there's many, many theories. Um, it's impossible to know for sure. And one theory, the more generous theory that the Nitziv uh, posited, who the Nitziv had given him the benefit of the doubt, um, which he tended to do to a lot of people. The Nitziv was a big lover of, of other Jews and tried to give people the benefit of the doubt. And then Itziv uh, said, it's because, of the, it's because of what he told my shver, it's because of what he told Rebetzala. He said that if you would feel what, 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 what the Russian government was not being sincere, and they were just trying to, to, to destroy the Jewish people, they weren't trying to help them at all, then he would leave. So he left. He saw that that's what the Russian government was doing. 
It's not so plausible. It doesn't seem to reflect really what Lillian Fall was thinking. And um, there's other theories, uh, theories that that uh, that he was that he himself was disgusted with the Russians. And he himself realized that he wasn't able to do what he was going to do, that there was too much opposition from the leaders of the Jewish communities, from the traditionalists. He wasn't getting along with this guy and with that guy. Even with the Maskilim at this point, he wasn't getting along anymore. There's all types of theories as to why he suddenly left. There is another, more interesting theory that Rabbi Kamenetsky and others have said is that he got involved in a financial scandal. As part of the educational reform, he was supposed to print new textbooks for the schools. He was supposed to print new chumashim for the schools and tanachs. And he was given paper and ink and printing presses and all that by Uvarov, by the Russian government. And there was a misappropriation of funds. There was embezzlement. There was cheating on the paper. There was all kinds of things like that. He was afraid of getting caught. And then he skipped down. So it could be that it had nothing to do with the whole ideology, but he was just being a crook through the business, and which obviously would, would be attempted to be hush up, hushed up afterwards, which is why it wouldn't have become a famous piece of history. So there's all types of theories why he left, but that's a little bit about the central role that Rabitzela plays in, in not just in Velazhin Yeshiva, but amongst the Jews of the Russian Empire. He dies in 1849, interestingly on his Matseva, it says what it said. I haven't been to his matzeva because he's not buried in Valajan. He's buried in some other town that I forget the name, and I don't even know if his matzeva still exists. And it, but but uh, it's brought brought down. And Nasakamnasi brings it down, and that that the first uh, the, there's one line about him being the Rashiv in Valajan, and then four lines about how he took care of the Jewish people in the Russian Empire, how he he met with Uvarov, and how he dealt with all the chinuch issues. That was like. That was four lines on his Matseva, as opposed to him being the Rashiv and Valajan, which was only one line in the Matseva. So he really played a central role there. So that's a little bit about Rabitzala and Valajan in that stage. This was Yehudi Gabra with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to places of Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.